It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. You and you still like me or you or you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. <laughs> I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth in America wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. So how did these domestic terrorists storm the nation's capital? The capital ransacked by MAGA terrorists. The assault perpetrated by the MAGA terrorists. The terrorists. The MAGA terrorists. MAGA terrorists. Deadly attack by MAGA terrorists. The MAGA terrorist mob. A terrorist attack on the U.S. Capitol. Far-right domestic terrorism, a huge problem in this country. Nobody supports terrorist attacks, or I used to think that anyway, but nobody rational supports ter terrorist attacks. Should there be repercussions for your colleagues who played a role in inciting this terrorist attack? You can't have presidents of the United States inciting terrorist attacks yeah. on the Capitol. Incited a terrorist mob. Incited the terrorist attack. And the terrorists that he has emboldened but after the terrorist attack on the capitol that deadly terrorist attack the deadly riot the terrorist attack the deadly terrorist attack that's and that's not even including the terrorist attack new clues that the january 6th capitol attack may just be the beginning of more right-wing extremist MAGA terrorist attacks in america all right so the, and that's just jake tapper uh, just his little contribution to the narrative that the people that were involved in january the 6th not only in support of President Trump on the on the mall, but also then those that went into the Capitol, why they're all violent terrorists and they're trying to overthrow the government. That's the that's the takeaway. And that's what a lot of your neighbors believe because they are constantly hearing it. Well, how do we get to this point? And what exactly is going on here? Uh, we're going to talk about this today in great detail. After January the 6th, uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence issued an unclassified assessment which was called Domestic Violent Extremism Poses Heightened Threat in 2021. All right, we're going to start with that, and uh, we want to talk about what's in that assessment and how it relates, actually, uh, to each of us. Kyle Scheidler is our guest. Kyle is the Director and Senior Analyst for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism for the Center for Security Policy. The Center for Security Policy is right downtown in D.C., and um, it was founded by our good friend Frank Gaffney, who does Secure Freedom Radio every night on this station and does a commentary in my show every single day. He's a very dear friend, and he's a national treasure, and Kyle Scheidler is one of his guys. Kyle, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Sandy. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. Kyle, let's talk about this assessment. First of all, um, we saw this coming on, and we're, you and I will talk about that, but Certainly, January 6th has brought this thing to a head. We have a new president, and a new he has a new staff. And so explain to me how they even put together this particular assessment. What, what was the background on that, and what was the impetus for that? So this assessment, which is from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which is responsible for overseeing the work of the entire country's in, intelligence community, uh, everything from the CIA to 
FBI to, you know, all the little tiny intelligence agencies inside things like the Department of Energy or whatever. And <clears throat> they released this very politicized assessment, uh, which, uh, one, they're using a new category, this category domestic violent extremists. It's not a term that they had adapted before. Uh, but it refers only to certain uh, domestic ideologies. Uh, it does not refer to anything uh, having to do with foreign terrorism or foreign ideology. So when they say, uh, you know, this threat, uh, this right wing threat is the greatest threat, know from the start that they're not including any threat from uh, jihadists or any threat from uh, whether connected to a terrorist organization or motivated by, simply by the jihadist ideology. So that's step one, right? They've already excluded a massive threat from their analysis before coming back and saying this other threat is this is the largest threat. Kyle, the next Kyle thing but, but hold on, just just to clarify. <laughs> so the uh, the shooting by the Muslim just this just last week uh, and the killing of uh, people in that grocery store that would not be they would not be factoring that even though it's domestic. Well, uh, as far as we know, yes, we're exactly what his motives are uh, were is not entirely clear. Uh, we do know he had some Facebook posts and some other things that uh, did sound like Islamist propaganda. Our good friend Zudi Jasser pointed that out in a, in a recent article saying you know, a lot of this stuff looked like Islamist propaganda to him. So there's a possibility that he was motivated by a jihadist ideology. We don't know that for a fact. But it wouldn't be the kind of thing that the ODNI was assessing or looking at at all. They simply did not pay attention to it. All right. So that to them. Uh, now, make sure I understand this, Kyle. Are they saying this? The, their definition of d domestic violent extremism is the is the greatest threat to the country, to the nation. Yes, that is what they are. That that is what they are saying. Okay. Uh, so and so they're discounting any potential uh, attentional. Uh, jihadi acts that may take place in the country, which I expect there will be more now that we have a new administration who doesn't seem too concerned about it. But Kyle, I interrupted your your train of thought. So let's go on back to this this assessment. So we're talking about how they are excluding various threats from their analysis. The next thing to look at is that they exclude any possibility of uh, looking at uh, risks from other domestic extremists other than the right wing. How do they do this? Well, they use this category, which they call racially and ethnically motivated violent extremist, which is a term the, F uh, the FBI created uh, after they received criticism from the Congressional Black Caucus for using the phrase black identity extremist to refer to uh, people like uh, various BLM activists who have murdered police officers um, and the like. So... Uh, they are no longer allowed to use that term, black identity extremists, so they use this broader term. But then the ODNI defines this broader term to refer to those extremists who have motivations pertaining to bias against minorities. So therefore, you have this broad term, racially, ethnically motivated extremists, but you are defining it only as people who have biases against minorities. So therefore, it only is defined as white supremacists oh, I see. by definition. Oh, my word. So there is yeah. nowhere in this assessment that they mention the possibility of uh, black nationalist or black supremacist uh, violence, despite the fact that we have had 
ongoing riots last summer that did a billion, two billion dollars worth of damage and killed more than uh, you know, killed dozens of people. You would yeah. think that somewhere in your domestic assessment would be, uh, you know, you would handle that in some way. They don't handle it at all. Wow, that is pretty frightening. I did not pick up on that, even in what I've read. So, the only domestic, a racially motivated, violent extremists are those that uh, are biased against minorities. Just to repeat what you just said. So, if a black person, and many are very, very hostile toward white or even Asian, we're seeing in the streets, uh, that doesn't count. Well, right. I guess Asian the, would. The- Asian would because it's a minority. I don't know. Uh, I would be curious. <laughs> I mean, we've seen plenty of media, uh, you know, corporate media arguing that uh, that recent attacks on on Asians is, you know, some form of white supremacy, despite the fact that it's largely been conducted by African-American males. Um, so, yeah, so there's there's these word games that they're playing and these definitions that they're playing with. And you need to look very carefully at that and pay attention to that before you start taking some of these assessments too seriously. Okay, so now, do in their assessment, where they talk about domestic violent extremism, are they talking about Antifa? Because they're white. Uh, it, it, are they mentioned here in any way? Is there any, any factoring in of their violence? So, in fairness to the ODNI, they do mention this uh, under what the government defines as anarchist extremists, which is an okay definition for Antifa. Most of them are anarchists or anarcho-communists of some stripe or another. So that's a decent definition. But then if you look how they describe anarchist extremists, it's extremely sympathetic. Uh, They essentially describe them as having concerns about the effects of capitalism and globalism uh, on our society. That's their definition. <laughs> nothing, nothing in the definition of anarchist extremist uh, about trying to overthrow the country, uh, trying to burn down federal courthouses, trying to murder police officers and burn them alive, uh, all of which are things that Antifa has done uh, or tried to do, right? None of that language is there. But if you compare that to the way they define militia violent extremists, which is another term that they use, Uh, They do say militia violent extremists intend to either violently resist or overthrow what they perceive to be a totalitarian government. So on the one hand, you have anarchist extremists who aren't defined as trying to overthrow anything. And the word violent doesn't even appear. And on the other hand, you have these militia extremists who are defined as as violent and, and illegally resisting the government. So this terminology and how they play with terms and the way they construe the nature of these movements is extremely important to understand. It really is. And Kyle, I guess, uh, let's, let's talk about this nuance because remember when Chris Ray was appearing before Congress in one of his many uh, hearings, he said that uh, Antifa was not uh, an organized group. It was merely an idea. And that was basically, I think, his excuse for not actually going after them. They're just an idea. How would militia violent extremists not be an idea? How would um, what? Uh, all of these are just ideas, aren't they? Well, this is the this according is the to their iron- definition. 
This is the irony of the government's focus on what they call violent extremism, because it is by definition a focus on the idea. Uh, the problem is, uh, or maybe it's not a problem, depending on what your motivations are, uh, but the problem is there is no law in this country that prevents, uh, that allows the government to do anything just because you have an, a violent idea. Uh, it only allows, it only, the government is only allowed to take action uh, or make prosecutions on the basis of crimes or conspiracy to commit crimes. Um, this is a little bit different than how we deal with foreign terrorists because it is illegal to be a member of a foreign terrorist organization because, uh, because that organization is foreign, the government can use national security powers and assets that it has against them because they are foreign that they can't use against domestic people and organizations. They can't define, uh, you can't just define a group, uh, even Antifa, as a terrorist organization domestically and take action against them on the basis of that. You have to have actual connections to crimes. And we are seeing a very strong push to do away with that distinction. They are trying to treat uh, domestic actors, people with domestic ideologies, in the same way that they uh, are supposed to treat international terrorists. And we'll go into that in more detail because you do a great job of explaining that, uh, Kyle. And I do want to get to, but I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit more here again. I was just noticing this uh, de definition, this is lifted out of this assessment. Uh, that these militia violent extremists are de defined by their own words as um, those who take overt steps to violently resist or facilitate the overthrow of the U.S. government in support of their belief that the U.S. government is purposely exceeding its constitutional authority and is trying to establish a totalitarian regime. Uh, they oppose many federal and state laws and regulations, particularly those related to firearms ownership. That sounds like so much of America to me right now. It really does, Kyle. Let's come back and expand on that. I'd like your thoughts. And also then, uh, you know that there was a letter that went to uh, the DNI concerned about this report for uh, something that you touched on a little bit in that uh, just a few minutes ago. But we'll go back to that. So uh, stay tuned. Kyle Scheidler is our guest. He's done a couple of great articles on this. And uh, we'll talk about that and put those on our Facebook page so that you can read them. But we're just starting, so don't, don't go away. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. And when I look at what happened on January 6th, it appears that uh, right-wing White supremacist groups played an instrumental role in the violent assault. Is that your conclusion also? Well, uh, let me answer that this way. I think we're basically saying the same thing. I mean, we don't tend to think, we at the FBI don't tend to think of violent extremism in terms of right, left. You know, we, that's not a, a, a spectrum that we look at. What I would say is that it is clear, as I think I said to Chairman Durbin, that uh, a, a large and growing number of the people that we have arrested so far in, the, uh, in connection with the 6th are what we would call militia violent extremism, uh, militia violent extremists, and then there have been some uh, already that have emerged who I would have put in the racially motivated violent extremist bucket. 
again, advocating for the spirit of the white race. And I understand from your testimony previously that uh, you did not see Antifa or left-wing groups playing a significant role in the January 6th insurrection. Certainly, we're, while we're equal opportunity and looking for uh, violent extremism of any, uh, of any ideology, uh, we have not to date seen any evidence of, uh, of anarchist violent extremists or, or people subscribing to Antifa uh, in connection with the 6th. That doesn't mean we're not looking and we'll continue to look, but it's, at the moment we have not seen that. That was Senator Pat Leahy uh, asking questions of FBI Director Christopher Wray. And you heard Chris Ray say, uh, we don't think of things in terms of right or left, which is uh, exactly the point that Kyle Scheidler, our guest, was making earlier, that they have watered down their assessment of extremism, of violence here at home, taken away distinctions, ironically, when so much of what the public conversation is, is about white and black extremism, they have erased that, and somehow Kyle that's supposed to be fairer. But from your perspective, what happens? What is actually happening here when they erase those distinctions? Well, this is the great irony, right? Which is that the more broad, the broader the terminology you use and the fuzzier the definitions you use, uh, the better the probability that uh, you are going to be applying these terms of extremist and terrorist to the mainstream political space, to regular people who hold fairly normal positions. And the less likely you are to, to describe and focus on uh, actual terrorists, people who have actual ideologies which are, in cons uh, which are against the U.S. Constitution and, and, our, and our system of government. So this, this is the great irony, but it, it works that way quite explicitly. Uh, you know, I wrote about this in my article for the American Mind, which you, you mentioned. Uh, this has been a long-standing process. This has taken a long time, but it's a development out of the reality that after 9/11, and we started our global war on terrorism, the one thing the government did not want to do was to say that um, jihadist terrorism has some link to. Uh, Islam or the, the Muslim world. And in order to do that, they broadened the terms and they used this broad extremist term. The problem with that is it requires, if you, if you aren't going to say that uh, a sub-segment sub of your threat, jihadists, is coming out of a larger sub, uh, segment of the population, you then have to treat the entire population as a whole as a terrorist. Right. And you see this every day when you go through the TSA body scanners and 90 year old ladies in wheelchairs are being searched with the same degree of em emphasis as the military age Arab male who just got off the plane from Syria. Right. That's the that's the, the way that the government has to function if they broaden out their categories in the way that they do. Okay. Yeah, Kyle, let's talk about, uh, let's jump right into that since you did. And I, um, you know, I had a front row seat to the very swift spinning of what had happened on 9-11, 2001. That's right, right, I had just come to D.C. right after that happened. And your boss, Frank Gaffney, my dear friend, 
was, of course, uh, very much in the middle of trying to uh, sort out what was true and what wasn't. Uh, so I, I would let me just suffice it to say that the left, in conjunction with the Islamists, Muslim Brotherhood specifically, went into overdrive to explain away and neutralize any anger toward Islam. Say a word about that, if you would, Kyle, because you know this is one of your areas of expertise. Yeah, I mean, we we definitely saw you know elements of the left together with uh, Islamist elements like the Muslim Brotherhood uh, pushed the U.S. government very aggressively uh, through lobbying, through through getting their people placed in significant advisory roles, etc., to uh, to be in a position to uh, broaden out terms, to to water down assessments, uh, not dissimilar to this, the assessment we were just talking about, right? Changing right. the way we identify things, changing the nature of what we're defining as a threat, changing the nature of uh, how we are defining threats and, and taking the focus off, off genuine threats and putting them on other perceived threats, right? And this has been a longstanding process. It's taken a really long time. Uh, the Islamists, I think, did it for obvious reasons. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Muslim Brotherhood in this country had played a long-standing role in engaging in material support for various jihadist elements across the world. They funded Hamas. They funded Al-Qaeda. They did similar things. So they had a very genuine reason for not wanting the U.S. government to look too hard uh, at what they were up to. But the leftists, I think, had a different reason. And that is, uh, when you broadly define who is a threat, it then creates great political power for the person who gets to direct where attention is spent. And this we saw, you know, quite clearly, right, with the, we mentioned that uh, situation with the Congressional Black Caucus eliminating the term black identity extremist. If you determine who the government can't look at, you have also determined who the government can look at. Right. Because the FBI is going to do its job. It has billions of dollars in budgetary funds that it has to spend every year. It's got thousands of agents. They're going to investigate something. It's their job. So if, if, if you've told them what they can't look at, if you told them what cases uh, they, they pursue will get them stuck in a desk at Anchorage, Alaska for the rest of their career, then, then where are they going to spend all their time? On the cases that you have told them they can make. And that's exactly what happens. So when they say, well, white supremacy is the biggest threat and jihad terrorism, they wouldn't ever say jihad terrorism, but that's actually what they're looking at, uh, or some of these other threats are not that big a threat uh, or not as significant. It's evidence of their having not looked because they only looked at the things they were told they could look at. Yes. Uh, without getting yelled at, which Kyle, is exactly I could also, what happens. Yes, and uh, to, to just give some background to this also, you know, right after 9-11, the FBI went into overdrive and were doing incredible work uh, to root out. There was such a, a, a patriotism compared to now. It was amazing. Uh, but, they, but then after that, when the left went into to overdrive, uh, they actually purged, you know, teaching about what Islam really was, about jihad, from the from Quantico, from training of agents. So we now have a whole new generation of agents who don't really 
know unless they just independently study. They really don't understand jihad. They don't know the history of it because that was purged. And then in the public discourse, you know, the left went overdrive into the immediately. Kyle, one of the b- biggest arguments I ever had on national television was with. Uh, I'm just blanking out. Somebody I could mention, I can't. But anyway, it was about them uh, politicizing the educational materials right after 9/11 to make sure that kid. Now, don't don't blame don't blame Islam. Islam is not responsible. The teachings of Islam don't. You know, it was just uh, they. It was a psychological uh, phenomena that I watched, and it was amazing. So, I think this this what we're talking about now is just the the natural drip down. It's gotten into the cultural bloodstream. It's uh, it's gotten into our agencies because they are younger now and they don't remember. And the whole story has changed about who is the enemy and who isn't. But uh, say more about that. Let's um, let's talk a little bit more about how it got to where it is now. So the, your article is called Making Americans Your Enemies. Well, let's go back to that. How did it transfer then to be you know regular people who are now the enemies? Well, Sandy, you, you make a really good point when you talk about how in the very early days of 9-11 and shortly after, uh, they, the government became very focused on what you should and shouldn't say about Islam connecting uh, any element of jihad to the fact that there is this larger population, right? What did they do after January 6th? The exact opposite. Yes. The exact opposite. They spent uh, 100% of their time, and we saw everybody from former CIA station chief counterterrorism experts to mainstream media people to uh, all kinds of academic so-called extremism experts, and they all were making the same point, the exact opposite point they were making after 9-11, which was to say that what happened on January 6th is actually the responsibility of a much larger community that we have to focus our uh, counterterrorism, and they used this term, not me, counterinsurgency efforts against that broader community of people, right? Uh, so that, um, and that's the exact opposite of the thing that they did after 9-11. And it, as you said, it took a long time for them to get there, uh, but that is where we are now uh, because they went through this process of changing the terms, of slightly changing and moving the definitions, of uh, purging people who looked at uh, the wrong kinds of cases and the wrong sorts of evidence, right? So now you have this community where uh, these are the kinds of cases that they're going to get rewarded for making. Kyle, let, let me ask you, this is complex. Uh, it's like a brain teaser. And so let's set, sit on something just for a second. What you were saying a minute ago was, for instance, when the uh, young man in California who killed the people in the grocery store, when that happened last week, immediately the FBI and other law enforcement are were doing exactly what you're talking about. He is, uh, uh, you know, independent of any larger group. He's a what we used to call a lone wolf. Uh, they, they pinned that term too for us. Uh, he couldn't possibly be tethered to some greater ideology like Islam or jihad. He has to be acting on his own, so he's just like everybody else. That's what you're trying to say. He's no different than uh, 
some other person who commits criminal act. There's nothing behind this, nothing tethered to. And you're saying, by contrast, on January 6th, the people that were in the Capitol have immediately been connected by their by the same um, elites to this larger network of regular people, of patriots, of Christian nationalists, they like to call us because that's a derogatory. So they are taking in account this larger group and uh, tying the individuals to that larger group to tar the larger group, the opposite of what they're doing with Islam. Did I make that clear? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you look at this case in Boulder, you had the situation where uh, elements of law enforcement were were leaking to the media that this had nothing to do with terrorism uh, before the FBI had even taken control of the scene. Uh, this is reminiscent of the Fort Hood shooting, where oh, yes. uh, you had you had the similar case where they were rushing to declare it not terrorism. It ended up getting defined by the DOD as workplace violence. Uh, similar situation with the Pulse nightclub shootings, uh, where they attempted to blame uh, the attacker for being uh, homophobic, rather than pointing out that he did this in the name of the Islamic State, which he he called into nine to the to 911 and, and told them why he was doing this and yet they still attempted to obfuscate what his objectives were contrast that with their treatment of this uh you know unfortunate riot where uh there's just really no solid evidence of any terrorism any terrorist intent any real violence i mean there was an interesting politico story a few days ago where the federal prosecutors' uh, cases in a lot and a lot of a lot of places are falling apart because they have overpushed and oversold this narrative, and so it's we're going to be watching that very closely. Uh, maybe they have evidence they put, haven't put forward yet, but it seems to me uh, that they are anxious to push this case uh, in a way that they do not treat genuine terrorists, um, you know, the most explicit, obvious kind of terrorists you could name. And I think that distinction is very disturbing. It should disturb all Americans. And they should demand that we have a law enforcement in this country that understands the threats. They understand the ideologies behind the threats. Uh, They understand the nature of the groups that are responsible for these attacks. And that doesn't just simply label every mainstream American uh, as some kind of criminal or terrorist. Yes, and uh, and you're spot on about that, Kyle. There's no question. In fact, a judge called out... Uh, the Justice Department just what last week or two weeks ago uh, saying that you know what are you doing you're 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 sort of like going public going on a PR campaign to convict these people and they have a right to defend themselves talking about the people on 9/11 uh, on I mean on January the 6th the the thing of it is Kyle as you know there is damage to be done to people just by charging them and tarring them with this uh, this insurrection label and that, that's that's probably the end game here, rather than actually putting them behind jail, putting them behind bars. Uh, Kyle's article is excellent. It's called Making Americans Your Enemies. It's in the American Mind. We'll put it on our Facebook page so you can access it, but we're not done. Kyle, when we come back, let's look at the key accusation here of white supremacism and where that's from and what's happening on that. Sandy Rios. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. I want to address what I consider the next big lie 
after the lie that the president really won on November 3rd, President Trump. The next big lie appears to be the argument that somehow or another those were not Trump supporters who invaded the Capitol. It was it made the rounds on the internet uh, right before they came into the building and has been gaining momentum ever since. I'd like to ask you, Director Rhee, do you agree that the Capitol attack involved white supremacists and other violent extremists? Uh, certainly the Capitol uh, attack involved violent extremists. Uh, as I said, we, the FBI, consider this a form of domestic terrorism. Uh, it included a variety of backgrounds. Uh, certainly there were quite a number, we're seeing quite a number as we're building out the cases on the individuals we've arrested for the violence, quite a number who what we would call sort of militia violent extremists. So we've got a number who self-identify with, you know, the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers, things like that. Uh, we also have a couple of instances uh, where we've already identified individuals involved in the criminal behavior who uh, we would put in the racially motivated violent extremists who advocate for what you would call sort of white supremacy. So there have been some of those individuals as well. One of the things that's happening as part of this is that as we build out the cases on the individuals, when we arrest them for the violence, we're getting a richer and richer understanding of different people's motivations. But certainly, as I said, militia violent extremism, some instances of uh, racially motivated uh, violent extremism, uh, specifically advocating for the superior of the white race. Based on your investigation so far, do you have any evidence that the Capitol attack was organized by, quote, fake Trump protesters? We have not seen evidence of that at this stage, certainly. All right, Sandy Rios back with you. My guest is Kyle Scheidler for the Center for Security Policy. And his article, by the way, is called Making Americans Your Enemies. Now, that clip was Senator Dick Durbin from my home state of Illinois uh, a grilling, a Christi- well, not grilling, sort of like expediting the testimony of Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI. It, it, it goes, we need to say, and Kyle, you did say this, there was precious little violence on that day. Is that, I mean, when we see the video, some videos, they can be disturbing. But violence, was there much violence on that day from your perspective? I think that was a relatively small portion of the total people that were there that day. You know, we have to remember the vast majority of people never went inside the building, never approached a police line, never did anything. Even of those who did enter the building, the vast majority of them never attacked anyone and never threw anything at a police officer or the like. That doesn't mean violence didn't occur. We know that it did. Uh, but was that violence terrorism? Well, consider that it's no different. I mean, it's actually it was significantly less than the amount of violence we typically saw on a night in Portland uh, during the summer in the attacks against the federal courthouse there. And the same federal officials refused to call those incidents terrorism in any way. So uh, this is once again an example, I think, where they are choosing to apply labels and terms in one case and not apply it in another case because of the people uh, that they perceive to be uh, involved, right? So this is perceived to be uh, something that occurred on the right, and therefore uh, they're going to apply labels and terms that they would never apply to a violent Antifa or BLM riot, for example. You know what's so strange, uh, just to back off, you can get so caught up in this, in the, in the language of it, that it's hard to be objective, but uh, I, I had a moment of objectivity for a second, and I'm thinking, wh- why in the world would you call anything that happened on January 6th uh, an example of white supremacism? We're talking about an election 
that people of all colors, and there were all colors of people there at that uh, rally for President Trump, felt there were problems with that election. And they wanted the Congress, who was meeting inside, to actually consider the evidence. Uh, and so that's that's white supremacism, and yet that's what they, that's their theme. And so let's talk about that. You you have a little subtitle here. Everything is white supremacy. Why? And what what do you mean? Why are they doing this? Right. So this is the interesting and important corollary to the point that I was making about how the government was restricted so that they could no longer essentially look at anything that wasn't. Uh, so-called right-wing extremism wasn't white supremacy. The other thing that was happening at the same time that that process was going on was that the left, through academia, through things like critical race theory uh, and and various in, in, elements of the broader culture, was inculcating the idea that literally everything is white supremacy. Uh, you know, we mentioned earlier on uh, how they attempted to label attacks on Asian Americans by African Americans as white supremacy. So if that's white supremacy, what isn't white supremacy? And and so once you've once you've done that, once you know, once the NFL is white supremacy and uh, you know, the color the, the skin color tones of various makeups is white supremacy. And well now written music doing... written music is now white supremacy. And maybe that came out since you wrote this, but white written written music is white supremacy, just so you know. Yeah, yeah. There was a, a case out of the UK, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yep. So if you if you are defining things in these way and you're broader broadening these categories, well then it becomes very easy for uh, it to become white supremacy. I mean, we see this in play right now in Georgia over the question of uh, voting ID and the like, where they say, you know, any kind of uh, effort to crack down on voter fraud is by definition white supremacy. Well, one of the main drivers of that rally was allegations and deep concerns in the American public about voter fraud. If that's the case, then vote, you know, being concerned about voter fraud is white supremacy. You know, that's the way, that's the way the game is played. And it's, uh, it's not too challenging a game to play once you learn the rules. No. And, and that's where we're at. Let me read a phrase from your own piece here. You say, uh, critical race theory has served as a kind of autoimmune disorder within the body politic by identifying the American regime itself as white supremacy and identifying that as the only possible threat to the regime. The security apparatus of the state has now been turned inward upon the state itself, and with it, our society, or in other words, upon us. And that's no exaggeration, Kyle. That's what we're seeing. Yes, and isn't it so curious that immediately after January 6th, the response by the left was to attack the military and police, yes. to accuse the military and police of white supremacy. Uh, having brought in the National Guard to serve as... Uh, a kind of backdrop for their claims of, of violent extremism that were likely to break out at any point, they then proceeded to accuse the National Guard of being white supremacist and insist right. on personally vetting every single one of them uh, because they might have been Trump supporters, as one, I think, congressman uh, openly said uh, on cable news. So this is, you know, this is what I'm talking about when I say that it was turned in on itself so that uh, it is essentially attacking uh, the regime is essentially attacking all the elements of its own institutions, 
under these claims of white supremacy. That's why, you know, the Democrats' uh, domestic terrorism bill uh, that is currently before the Senate uh, focuses extensively on targeting and vetting law enforcement and the military. It doesn't oh. focus on building up the military or building up law enforcement in order to uh, engage with what's perceived as this domestic threat. No, no, no. They want to tear down law enforcement. And that's the best way to resolve a domestic terrorism threat. It's very strange. And if you, if you just approach it from, you know, if this is the first time you're seeing it, it seems very odd. But if you can follow this thread of the way that this has been done so that the regime now is turned upon itself, then you start to see how it works and how it is that, you know, we, we have a law enforcement and a military that is primarily concerned with uh, targeting people within its own ranks. It's very strange. You know, let me read another thing from your, uh, from your article. Robert Grenier is a former CIA station chief in Pakistan, wrote in the New York Times. Uh, this, he's describing people, the, the enemy, I guess. Uh, there has long existed in this country a large religiously conservative segment of the population, disproportionately, though not entirely, rural and culturally marginalized that believes that, with some reason, it is being eclipsed by politically and culturally ascendant urban coalition of immigrants, minorities, and the college-educated secular elites of tech and mainstream media. That coalition, in their eyes, abridges their religious freedoms, disparages and cancels their most cherished beliefs, seeks to impose socialism, and is ultimately prepared to seize their guns. This, in very general terms, is the core segment of the nation that has been unified, championed, and politically energized by Donald Trump. So is he saying, Kyle, that that description is of the people that are now the enemies, the number one threat in the country? Are those the people? Yeah, I mean, I was actually somewhat surprised to have such a cogent political analysis from somebody who'd spent so much time in, in uh, counterterrorism in the CIA, because that's the kind of assessment of the culture that you can never get from the CIA when it comes to, you know, Islamist movements like the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, but when it's when he's analyzing Americans, he, he seems to be able to, to define this group. But then, of course, he, he will go on in the same piece to uh, compare them to the Taliban. Uh, <laughs> so this is uh, this is exactly what I'm talking about. The uh, the ability to do this against people. I mean, nothing he says in that piece is illegal or violent or extreme in any way. No. Uh, it is. It is. Those are some of the most common uh, political positions uh, that have been held in this country since it was founded. You know, we've had tensions between urban and rural since we were founded. We've had tensions over uh, who's getting rich and who's not since the founding. These things are common in republics like ours. And to take a whole segment, a whole what Madison and James Madison would have called a faction. Uh, and to define them as as the enemy is deeply disturbing. It's deeply un-American, frankly. Well, then, and, he, well, then he and you mentioned this, but let's take the, let's go there because he says basically yes, they hunted down Al Qaeda and then they but they realized that in order for Al Qaeda to flourish, they were the terrorists. The Taliban was represented the the uh, the ideology behind it, and so they had to go after the Taliban. And so he's saying basically. We have to do the same thing with these religious people. And he's talking about Christians. 
So what does that look like? What is he talking about? Well, almost unfortunately, it probably won't be uh, the same way we dealt with the Taliban if we're referring to the currently ongoing U.S. Taliban peace talks, right? They are more willing to talk to the Taliban than they are willing to talk to their own uh, their own fellow Americans. Uh, that's the great irony is he's describing treating them as the Taliban, but in fact, he wants to treat them far worse than the Taliban because the Taliban he's willing to talk to. And that was the conclusion of my piece is maybe we need to talk to these people. Maybe if people have concerns about election integrity and they have concerns about tyranny and the government overstepping its bounds, it's possible they have a point. It's possible they are legitimate participants in the political process, and maybe we should talk. Well, this is that hallmark of totalitarianism, that when they are challenged, they clamp down. And they, they clamp down more and more and create more rules and more restrictions. Uh, and they're always paranoid. They're, they always, for whatever reason, even Stalin, you know, killed almost everyone around him. Uh, they feel the need to destroy and control everything. And so they're not, they don't talk. They don't sit down and have like open discussions unless it's to intimidate or harm. So I guess the, the, the question remains, and I don't, Kyle, I recognize there is really no answer to this as far as I know, but I'll ask you anyway. How in the world we have a history of totalitarian governments taking over and subjecting people and eliminating them? How, how in the world do we fight back on this? What is that? What's the pill? What's the antidote to this? Anecdote. Antidote, sorry. I think the answer is we have to rely on our federal system. We have to uh, go and help and work with people at the local and the state level who get this. Uh, and we have to respond politically. So we need, you know, if you are concerned about these issues, you need to be politically active locally. You need to be act politically active at the state level so that you have a forum in which to speak. You have a a, uh, a co-equal branch of government which can respond to what's, what, what appears as a federal overreach and the like, right? That's yes, the, uh, yes. That's and you're, the you're, you're spot on. You're spot on, Kyle, because the, the state legislatures are still controlled, uh, the majority of them, by conservatives. And that is where there is some, still some power left, and that's what we should be applying ourselves to. I know that the Center for Security Policy is actually doing that. Kyle's article is Making Americans Your Enemies. Kyle Scheidler, thank you so much. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talks.